You are listening to the Salvation Army Disaster Radio, covering all things related to emergency management, disaster services, and the Salvation Army. Welcome to Salvation Army Disaster Radio and part one of our series on the Incident Command System, or what we're calling the ICS Hendecagon. Yeah, you can tell Jeff was an English major. A Hendecagon, for all normal people in the world who actually played sports in high school, is an 11-sided shape. And there are 11 episodes in our series on ICS. Hence the name ICS Hendecagon. Yes, Jeff. The title's not really important, though. One thing our listeners should know is that these episodes of the Salvation Army Disaster Radio are a little different from our usual podcasts. Yeah, by popular demand, they're much shorter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, each of our ICS podcasts are only about 15 minutes. So get ready to cram what you need to know, or better yet, these episodes are great refreshers following more training. Absolutely. This episode provides a general overview of the incident command system and is a great place to start. Other episodes in the series will cover each of the nine key ICS functions and the policy group. Now, you don't have to listen to all of them. Just pick the ones that really are important to you. Or you could listen to all of them, and that would make us feel better. It would. <laughs> okay, so the clock is ticking. Let's dive right in. Jeff, what is ICS? ICS is a standardized, on-scene, all-hazards incident management concept. Now, that's a fancy way to describe a system that really brings order to the chaos of a disaster site. And let's be honest, this isn't something the Salvation Army went ahead and made up. This is the industry standard for emergency management. Well, that would make sense because we work with so many other organizations on the disaster site, so I could see wanting to kind of play by the same game, talk some common language. Absolutely. When you start using ICS, you start speaking a language that is common to all kinds of disaster responders, police, fire, EMTs. Um, and let me give you a good example why common language is critically important. Uh, we have a very important title in the Salvation Army called Divisional Secretary. But when the Divisional Secretary shows up on site and meets the fire chief, the fire chief says, Secretary, you might as well go ahead and start making coffee because that secretary title doesn't mean anything to that firefighter. But if you tell them you're the Salvation Army incident commander, right away they know you're the top dog of our operation. That makes a lot of sense. So tell me now how ICS works specifically on a disaster. Well, here's the first thing you absolutely have to remember. If you're setting up a disaster relief operation according to ICS, you always, always, always start with the position of the incident commander. Because I'm assuming you don't want to start with the absence of command. If, say, you're responding even to a local fire, someone has to be on site that is able to lead and able to make decisions. That's a critical principle of incident command. You must start with somebody in charge so that if something goes wrong, there's somebody who can make decisions about how to react. So is the incident commander on his own? Yes, until other people start to show up and then he or she can do something pretty special. They can do something called delegation. Well, you're setting me up for a great Bible story that many people are aware of in the Old Testament with Jethro and Moses, when there's a whole line of people waiting to seek guidance from Moses. And, and basically, Jethro says to him, this workload is too heavy for you. You've got to have capable subordinates to work under you and manage this load. And that's one of the principles in ICS. Absolutely. When the work is too heavy for one person or you're feeling overwhelmed, start delegating. And the incident commander can, can delegate to what we call eight 
key functions or special positions. Um, these represent eight bases that need to get covered in order to make an effective disaster response operation. I get this. So let me throw out some positions and I want you to tell me what they're responsible for. Um, the public information officer. These are your folks who are going to deal with external media and provide internal communications. Liaison officer. Liaisons are your diplomats. They're going to be sitting in your emergency operations center, creating connection with other agencies. Emotional and spiritual care officer. The pastors of your operation. They're going to minister not just to the people who survived the disaster, but also your own staff. Safety officer. Making sure people don't get hurt. I like to describe the safety officer as the lifeguard of the disaster operation. We're moving away now from those positions that are technical advisors to the incident commander, which we call command staff, and now into the general staff positions. Operations chief. Uh, the operations section is probably the big one. Um, all direct services fall under operations. That's anything that touches a victim. Things like food service, sheltering, cleanup and recovery. Logistics chief. Without logistics, operations doesn't run. Logistics folks go out and secure the resources necessary to deliver services. So those are your shoppers, your information and technology people, also your communications folks. Finance and administration chief. Finance and admin, the uh, definition is in the title, the word finance. They're the people who are going to process all the bills and invoices related to the operation, but they also deal with personnel, recruiting volunteers and making sure your human resources are managed appropriately. And last but not least, planning chief. Planning. While everybody else is looking at what's going on today, serving disaster survivors and rescue workers, the planner is looking towards tomorrow. Where do we need to go uh, over the next couple of days to continue our disaster operation? So we've got all of these positions that work together. Are there principles, characteristics that govern how the whole flow of the system works? Absolutely. They're called ICS management characteristics. And without using these characteristics, you basically just have an organizational chart, just a bunch of names on a, on a piece of paper. Um, the ICS management characteristics govern how these positions interact with one another. Here's one of my favorite, Jeff, unity of command. And basically this means that every person in the command structure only reports to one supervisor. If you're on a disaster site and you're taking orders from more than one boss, then something's wrong. Absolutely. Confusing conversations and you're not sure who to follow. What about yours? I think my favorite ICS management characteristics is manageable span of control. What that means is that one person can only do so much until they get overwhelmed. And ICS sets an optimum management level, basically five different things. So if you start managing uh, six, seven, eight, nine shelters, uh, that's probably going to be overwhelming. And it's time to go back to that Bible story that you mentioned. It's time to delegate to some subordinates and start spreading out those responsibilities so that you don't have as many things on your plate. Interestingly, for the most part, when we do after-action reviews on our disasters, almost all of our shortcomings can be traced to not following one of these principles, which kind of brings us or segues us into the next topic is we have five minutes left. Let's bash the people who mess the system up for us. In a good way. Yes. Of course, <laughs> yes. But really, where have we seen ICS just slide right off the rails? Well, I think one of the things that always drives me crazy is the people who make up their own version of ICS. Um, they decide that, uh, you know what, 
um, we'd like to tailor this or tweak this just a little bit because we really don't want to have one incident commander. We're going to have an assistant incident commander and uh, maybe some other folks in the mix. And really, what that does is water down the system. And when you start doing that, you're not using ICS. You're doing some system you've created, some kind of aberration that ultimately is just going to lead to confusion. One thing you said in there kind of leads to my point, which is the improper use of deputies. I think sometimes the, the persons chosen to be the incident commander want the title and all of the glory, but they don't necessarily want to do the work. And so they use their deputy to fulfill all of their tasks in that role. And that is not the correct use of a deputy. A deputy is there to assist the incident commander and to do special projects for the operation, but to not walk in the incident commander's shoes while the incident commander just basks in the glory of the title. By the same token, um, the deputy should not be the sole person on scene. ICS is an on-scene management concept, and so you don't want to have a deputy on the front lines and your incident commander back, for example, at divisional headquarters. The IC should be on site, and if they're not, if that person isn't there, then they probably shouldn't be the incident commander. And back to manageable span of control. Too many times on the disaster site, we see one individual responsible for too many tasks and or too many tasks that don't go together. It's completely inappropriate to make your volunteer coordinator go down the street and be your EOC liaison. Those tasks just don't work together and it's too much for one person. We call those the Frankenstein positions where you've just mashed together responsibilities into some kind of creature and really you're setting that person up for failure. ICS divides those functions into very specific categories so that they kind of link together and the person has a good chance of success. When you start mashing responsibilities together, that chain of command, that line of authority gets very confused and the person does indeed get overwhelmed. And really, the person in that role, it's not their fault they had too much on their plate. It's the fault of the supervisor for not looking out and saying, wow, I've given this person 13, 14, 15 things to do. How can they possibly be successful? And let us not forget that part of the reason we've adopted the incident command system is to work more fluidly with other organizations. So if another organization sees one of our positions doing a hodgepodge of tasks, they don't know who they're truly supposed to relate to when working together. All right, Jeff, I think that gives me everything I need to know about the definition of incident command system. But if I'm deployed to a disaster and I'm going to work in one of these positions, I want to know more about each one. That's the next step then. Listen to the rest of the episodes in our ICS Hendecagon. Uh, each of the next episodes describe one of those positions in detail, from the incident commander right down to the planning chief. I'll promise you that I will listen and I will get my friends to listen as long as you use the word Hendecagon every single time. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had something snappier to come back with that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Disaster Radio. We welcome your questions or comments. Send us an email at disasterradio at uss.salvationarmy.org. And remember, it's easy to support the Salvation Army. To donate time, money, or materials, go to www.salvationarmyusa.org or simply call 1-800-SAL-ARMY.